Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversation and great stories. I'm your host, Brian R. Solomon, and here we are, here we are at episode six of Shut Up and Wrestle. We got some good stuff this week uh, coming down the pike, and as always, first I want to talk a little bit about some things that I've got going on and things that are for you to look out for in the weeks to come and maybe the days to come. I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, actually another podcast that I'm a co-host of, the PWI podcast. We have a pretty special episode this week where um, it's not old school related, but it's uh, for those current wrestling fans out there. Uh, we're, we're talking about the new announcement of Tony Khan and AEW purchasing Ring of Honor. And we're talking about Vince McMahon um, uh supposedly now wrestling at WrestleMania at the age of 76 and various things like that. So you might want to look out for that. In fact, I think by the time this podcast is out, um, it will already be available, the PWI podcast with me and my co-host Al Castle. Um, Also want to mention Inside the Ropes magazine, which I talk about here from time to time. Um, I've got a few exciting articles coming out in there. And the current issue, issue 18, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but it's the new issue with Ronda Rousey on the cover. I have an article that I worked really hard on, on kind of the the travails and the various rises and falls of Triple H in WWE, um, leading most recently to what we've been seeing happening. And so that's out now. And I also just finished a new article kind of a companion piece for the next issue, issue 19. I'll be talking more about that. And it's uh, this one's all about Shane McMahon, who also recently had a very interesting kind of fall from grace. And he's someone that I worked very closely with in my years at WWE. So I have a chance to, to write all about that in the next issue of Inside the Ropes. Of course, you can get those at insidetheropesmagazine.com. I would be remiss if I did not give you a little update on my upcoming biography of the Sheik, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. I have a very cool announcement to make, which I also made on Twitter uh, recently, which is that, uh, first of all, uh, Rob Van Dam, uh, some of you may know, was a trainee of the original Sheik, and uh, he broke him into the business, and he, he was kind enough to write the forward to my book. And so I have conducted a special interview conversation uh, for Shut Up and Wrestle with Rob Van Dam. That's going to be coming up. Uh, I'm saving it for the week of the book's release. So that will be, uh, that'll be posted April 13th. So we're going to sit on that for a little while. But RVD coming to Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. Uh, but right now I want to talk about this week's guest. So uh, a little bit of preface before I get to uh, the interview. Now, uh, the man I'm talking to this week, 
It's Mr. Jeff Walton. Now, Jeff Walton is a name for those of you that that followed uh, California wrestling back in the day and are fans of old school territory wrestling. You will know who he is. But uh, Southern California in those days, uh, 60s, 70s, was a hotbed of professional wrestling, one of the hottest territories in the country, run by uh, the LaBelle family, Mike LaBelle in particular. And Jeff was an assistant to Mike LaBelle for many years, and he saw a lot of very cool things. So this is a a fascinating interview, which you're going to see in a few minutes. I want to also thank his son, Scott. So Scott Walton, good friend of mine, he really helped to facilitate this interview and make it happen. So many, many thanks to him. And I just want to say, uh, related to that, so you may notice uh, in this week's interview that The audio at times is a little bit spotty here and there. It occasionally goes out um, uh, from time to time. Of course, you know, we did our very best. Uh, Jeff, uh, as myself, I'm not going to say I'm I'm exactly Bill Gates or or Steve Jobs. Uh, Some of us are a little technologically challenged. And and so uh, (laughs) Jeff is not uh, admittedly not on top of the whole technology thing. So we did our best to make this as um, as nice of a listen as it could be. So uh, it's still a fantastic interview. Just my apologies for some of the kind of drops in the audio that you may hear from time to time. But all that aside, let's go to the interview right now with Jeff Walton. So right now, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast somebody that I've really wanted to have as one of my 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 first guests on here and um if you grew up with LA wrestling and you, and if you know about southern california wrestling then you definitely know um who he is and if you don't if you didn't have the 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 pleasure of growing up with that then you're in for a treat today cuz we're going to we're going to learn a lot and uh, he was for many years and correct me if i if i misdescribed you but for many years the right-hand man for Mike LaBelle in the Southern California wrestling promotion and, and a very key person in the history of territorial wrestling. He's the author of uh, the book RI95171, A Wrestling Story, and his name is Jeff Walton. So, Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on. Brian, it's your pleasure. <laughs> Believe me, I know you're joking when you say that, but I really feel that way. It is my pleasure, and it's an honor to pick your brain about some of these incredible things. Um, so just for people that, um, for the younger folks, let's make it clear now. If How would you explain and describe what your role was back in the day, and what time frame are we talking about here? You'd need about uh, 25 podcasts to... <laughs> At that, uh, you know, I did everything in in wrestling, and it, it didn't start out that way. Uh, I'll try to go through this real quick. Uh, I started out in about 1961 when I was president of the Worldwide Freddie Blassie Fan Club, as most people know, and that was a lot of fun, and that got me interested in wrestling. And it was in '61 that I first went to my first wrestling match at the Olympic Auditorium, which was. Zebra Kid against Tricky Ricky Star, and uh, I was hooked. I mean, it was quite a uh, a thing to see these wrestlers go at it. And of course, you know, I was always interested in uh, Blassie and the way he would do his interviews and everything like that. 
So if you jump ahead, what happened was I would continue to do the fan club. Uh, one day I, uh, I called Mike LaBelle and I said, you know, your programs aren't that great. And uh, I'm a journal, uh, journal student in college and uh, journalism student. And I, and I'd like to, I'd like to do the, do the programs. And he said, well, there's a guy here that worked for the uh, LA uh, Herald Examiner and he's leaving us. And how would you like to do the, the programs on a permanent basis? And I said, well, that would be great. So I, I started to do the programs. Mike really liked the programs. I finished school. Um, I went to work at another job. I was there for about two weeks. And Mike said, uh, how would you like to come down and be my wrestling publicist here at the Olympic? And uh, that was a dream. You know, you, you didn't uh, hear about that stuff. Outsiders weren't really into wrestling at all. You, they wouldn't let you in. You had to be in the biz. And right. so uh, I, I went to the Olympic Auditorium and uh, I worked there from... Uh, uh, it was actually 1967 through about 1982, 83, around that time when Mike uh, finally decided he was going to sell out to Vince McMahon, who was doing this, you know, national expansion. And I did everything there was. I, I promoted at various clubs that we had out here. Uh, I did the TV announcing with Dick Lane. I did it without Dick Lane. I sold tickets, and the, hence the title Richmond 95171. You'd call that number. You'd reserve your tickets for the Olympic Auditorium. And uh, it was um, uh, something I did for a long time. And, and I, I, I gradually got into the business. Uh, I wasn't accepted right away. Uh, Mr. Moto, Charlie Moto, he was the matchmaker and the booker at the for all the clubs here in Southern California, and he was very suspicious of any outsiders. And it took me a while to gain his confidence and trust. And once you know, I was in there and I went into the meetings, and of course my eyes opened wide because I'd never expected wrestling to be what wrestling was then. Uh, and uh, I learned every facet of the business and and by facet i mean setting up the ring the chairs uh you know doing everything you could do uh in the professional wrestling business and uh then when things kind of went south in the 80s the early 80s uh i decided uh, to uh you know try to get into the business more and i did i went to uh tennessee and went went to work for Jerry Jarrett and I became a manager. Uh, my persona was uh, Tux Newman and uh, it got over very well, got over good with Jerry Lawler, who was the mainstay there. And uh, I uh, was there for about six months and I had two young boys at home here in Los Angeles. My wife was working and uh, I decided, you know, I'd like to be home with my boys and and so I left Tennessee because actually the, the pay was not great at all, especially then, you know, you'd travel over 3000 miles a week, driving your car and putting wear and tear on it. And at the end of the week, you'd end up with, if you were lucky, 
or hundred dollars and you had to pay for your own hotel room or motel room and that was of course a lot more so i was losing money all the way around and uh so I, I came back and I did little things in wrestling here. Smaller clubs were running. Uh, Jesse Hernandez, who used to work for me, he um, he now started Empire Championship Wrestling, and I helped him out a bit. And uh, I promoted a show at the Olympic Auditorium with Vern Gagne. It was a battle royal. I kept our, our annual battle royal alive and going. And uh, we promoted one show there because we only had television for the one show and worked with uh, Japan, New Japan Pro Wrestling. And uh, when they were first getting started with Antonio Noki behind that. So I was sending American wrestlers to uh, Japan and um, uh, also uh, working a little bit with Mike. Mike had had. Um, uh, sold a little bit of the territory to Vince Jr. And Vince Jr. kept Mike on as uh, the front man, the promoter for uh, the LA area. And so I did some stuff with Mike still. And um, that kind of went sour, but that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast. <laughs> and um, in general, I, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of many. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it sounds that way. There, there, there's so much going on there when you were when you were describing all that, all these questions kept popping into my head. But I wanted to just back to the beginning of what you said there, just real quick. You mentioned when you were, you know, that first going to wrestling matches in the early 60s that you mentioned the Zebra Kid now that he was the first wrestler you saw. Now, if I'm correct on this, wasn't that Lenny Montana? The zebra kid, or am I wrong? The, the guy who played Luca Brasi no. in The Godfather. Why am I thinking that? No, it wasn't uh, I, I, it, it was George Bolas, a gentleman okay. by the name of George Bolas, and he was a fantastic wrestler. And he worked out here quite a bit because a lot of the wrestlers that worked out here or came through here, they a number one, they wanted to be in the movies, so they would try to get movie roles. They would try to get an agent. Um, a.k.a. Mike Mazurki, mm. uh, who worked in the movies from the early 40s all the way through and and uh, was a wonderful actor. But the other guys wanted to do it, too. So they would come in here, they would wrestle, and uh, if things didn't pan out, they would leave. But uh, we also had guys come in here uh, to go to Japan, and so they would stop off at the Olympic uh, or they would stop off for a week uh and work the Olympic or some of the other uh, small, smaller clubs that we had that were like in San Bernardino, Long Beach, Bakersfield, San Diego. So that's what kept our territory going. And you mentioned something that interested me when, when you first got involved, you said how um, it was very different behind the scenes than what you expected wrestling would be. Now I know when I came to work for WWE many years later, um, that I had the same feeling in a different way. I just was not, I didn't, in my case, I didn't anticipate how much of a, a business it was. I just, you know, thought in my head as a wrestling fan, well, it's like, um, it's like a, it's like a sports league or something. And, and when I got involved in it, with it, really learning how much of a, 
of a corporate kind of entertainment company it was. What was your experience like getting behind the scenes, you know? Well, in in those days, things were a lot different than they are with uh, Vince McMahon today and uh, as it was probably when you got into the business. Uh, I... Uh, you know, I, I was always told wrestling is a fake. It's a sham. It's uh, it's all choreographed. It's all planned out. Everything is done. And when I got into it and I sat there in the meeting and uh, Moto would talk to Jules Strongo, who was one of the owners of the territory at the time, and Mike LaBelle, who was there. And you'd have sometimes you'd have Blassie up there or sometimes you'd have John Tolis up there. And we'd all just chit chat and we'd talk about uh, everything that was being planned for the next six months. It, it just kind of surprised me it, because I had no idea that it, it was really the way it, it was. And yes, it first and foremost, Brian, uh, professional wrestling is a business. It's, uh, of course, for fans, it's entertainment, and that's the whole idea. But uh, it's a very serious business, and it's a very cutthroat business, and a very backstabbing business, and uh, hmm. it can be... Uh, it can be, it can break your heart, uh, you know, uh, as you can see with a lot of the talent today that are, that are not working and should be working, but, you know, uh, everything's kind of uh, monopolized by a few main companies, you know, and in a lot of cases out here, we have smaller groups that run in bars or they run in uh, YMCA buildings or uh, school gyms. And that's all well and good. That keeps it alive and it keeps young talent busy and working. But it's very difficult today to uh, get into the business. Now, in my day, it wasn't that difficult if you were a trained wrestler because you had a, a club system. You had, a, uh, you had a, a thing where promoters from all over the United States that we're promoting like Eddie Graham in Florida or uh, Paul Bosch in Texas or Mike LaBelle in Los Angeles or uh, Don Owen you know, up in Portland and Seattle. You had all these small uh, areas where guys could learn and work. And that's the way it should be because that's what improves your talent, makes stars. Uh, Roddy Piper started uh, down with Red Bastine in Texas. And then Bastine couldn't use Piper anymore because he was promised to Don Owen. Well, uh, Bastine said, why don't you stop in Los Angeles, Roddy, and get a little bit of experience? Well, Roddy was only going to be here for two weeks, and he ended up being here for almost three years. And he got a lot of experience. He got experience to talk. He got experience to work with some top guys, both uh, Americans and Hispanic wrestlers who were terrific. So those that's what is different, you know? Right. And today, uh, okay, there's schools or WWE has their own school or their own training center, you know? And uh, I'm sure... Uh, aw starting the same thing and and getting their guys uh but the whole idea of wrestling today is a lot different than it was in my day 
And there was there was a lot more sharing too, wasn't there? Like, like you were saying, where the promoters would all be in communication with each other because because they weren't competing. They were in totally different areas. So so one guy could say, hey, uh, I don't need this kid anymore, you know, and maybe you might want to use him. He could be good for you and blah, blah, blah. And a lot more guys, I guess, were able to make a decent living doing this than, than today, probably. You hit the nail right on the head. That's the way it was. A guy would stay in an area for maybe six months. If he was really hot or got over, as we say, he would be there for a year. But in most cases, uh, promoters would get on the phone and they would say, uh, because they wanted to help the, the wrestler, and they'd say, look, I've got this young guy named Roddy Piper. He comes in with bagpipes and he, he's he got a skirt, and he, but he's a tremendous heel and he can be a great baby face for you. So you're right. They would give him two weeks notice. They would ship him out and go over to another uh, area, whether like I had said before, Texas or, or Seattle or Oregon or uh, New York or wherever, you know, there was, there was a mix of talent that would grow and improve. And these guys would become superstars. And we have, I always called my era in wrestling, the golden age of, of wrestling. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I can see that. And uh, that's why I love talking about it so much because um, not to make you feel old, Jeff, but it's, it's a little before my time, but I find it fascinating. And I wish I, I can't tell you how often I think, boy, I wish I could have been a fan back then. What it, what it must've been like. Um, like, for example, I, you know, I, I have to ask you about Freddie Blassie because, you know, I got to cross paths with him at the very end of his life, you know, when I was working at WWE and as people probably know, you know, he became closely affiliated with the McMahon family and he spent the latter part of his life and career working there. But when I knew, so when I met him a couple of times that I did, he was very old and I wasn't really able to have much interaction with him. So, but, but I was always a huge fan, huge fan. So I have to ask you what, what was it like being around him, even just away from the ring? What kind of a guy was he? Well, you know, a lot of this is in my book. And, uh, you know, Blath, it was amazing. Uh, I started out, like any other fan, hating this guy because he, he would win his matches, but he would get the crap beat out of him. And uh, he was very, very uh, hated in the area. And I couldn't understand uh, the logic behind it. And... Finally, the more I watched him, the more I really came to like the guy. And uh, I felt uh, that there, uh, he was something special. And, and Freddie Blassie was like what, what we would consider the Buddy Rogers of the West Coast. Mm. Buddy Rogers at the time was very hot on the Eastern seaboard in all the towns. And he was the NWA champion. And he was a uh, arrogant blonde, you know. Well, out here, Blassie was the same way, but he could talk up a storm. And he, in the ring, he knew how to get the fans on their feet. And this was amazing to watch in itself. And so I decided, well, you know, the fan club would be the next step. And, and I actually first met him 
with my friend Terry, we went down to uh, the international airport because Blassie had said on TV the night before, I'm going to Montana to defend my championship belt tomorrow morning at, uh, uh, at LAX. So my friend Terry and I, who were young kids, we were still in high school, and, and we said, let's go down to the airport and we'll meet Freddie Blassie. Now, that's really stupid because, you know, a lot of stuff is all hype in wrestling, and whatever they say, they don't mean, you know. But we, we, we did it. We went down there. So here we are standing, two young kids in the airport. We waited about four hours, got there about four hours before his plane was supposed to leave. And then all of a sudden, about a half hour before the plane leaves, Blassie comes walking through. And Terry says, there he is. That's Freddie Blassie. And I said, okay, let's leave. We've seen him. And my friend Terry says, no, no, no. We came down here to meet him. We're going to meet him. I said, no, Terry, I don't want to have anything to do. Look at his face. He's he's walking through the place like he's going to kill somebody if you approach him. And finally, Terry, who's about six feet five and was then too, and and it goes over. And Mr. Blassie, uh, my friend and I are big fans, and then we're starting a fan club for you. And all of a sudden, his face changed. Blassie's face and he had a big smile on his face and he said you guys came down here to meet me well yeah you said on tv you're going to montana to defend your world wwa world title and he says oh yeah yeah right i don't know where he was going he probably wasn't going there montana. who's going to defend their world title in montana anyway so uh from then on uh, I just stuck with him and then he went to Hawaii and wrestled and got very sick and had to have a kidney removal and everybody said that's the end of Blassie and I said no not as far as I'm concerned so I kept the fan club going and I I wrote uh, I got letters from Fred he sent me letters which are in the book and uh, saying how he appreciates me supporting him and he said I'm going to come back and wrestle. Well, the doctor said, you only have one kidney. You go back and wrestle and something happens with your kidney, you're dead. But Fred was determined. So he sold cars and he worked out at the gym. And finally, one day he sent me a letter and he said, Jeff, I'm coming back to wrestling. And I talked to Jewel Strongbow and Mr. Moto. And he said, I'm coming back to Los Angeles. And I've got pictures there where I met him at the airport. And uh, he, he didn't remember what I looked like, but when I approached him and I said, I'm Jeff, and, and he goes, oh, and I got the biggest hug, and, and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear that. I really am, because you, you often hear from people that the, the, the bad guys of wrestling, you know, the heels are actually the nicer ones, but when you, when you actually meet them, they tend to be the nicer guys. And I always got the impression... Uh, just from seeing him and seeing interviews with him and things and watching him, he seemed like the kind of person that even though he was this awful guy on screen, that if you got him away from it, that he would be the salt of the earth, you know? You know, what was, what was, that is so true. Uh, the, the bad guys are the nice guys. Uh, when Scott, my, my oldest son was, uh, Oh, about uh, three years old. Uh, I took him down to one of the hotels that Blassie was staying in Santa Monica uh, and Fred took him in the swimming pool and played with him. Uh, and, you know, uh, this guy, it, just like he was his uncle or his, you know, 
best pal. And it, 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 the nice guys are the, sometimes the toughest guys that I've mm. found uh, to get anything out of. And like you say, that's very true in the business. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I also, the reason I wanted to mention him too here is I think for some fans of a certain age, it's important to point out and remember, you know, if you only knew Freddie Blassie as a manager, you know, from the WWF, if that's all you know of him. And look, there's the, he was fantastic in that role. He was great. I mean, legendary. But you also need to realize that he was a major national and even global wrestling star. He was, which, which honestly, very few wrestling managers, guys that become managers are. Often the managers were maybe the wrestlers who they were mid carters or maybe their, their wrestling career was never that huge. Like somebody like Lou Albano, who was not a huge star. He wasn't a main event star as a wrestler. And they, and he, and he actually did much better as a manager, but Blassie had this amazing main event, you know, world champion level career before he ever got into uh, being a manager at the end of his career. Right. Right. Um, a lot of times the, the wrestlers, they can't get out of the business. You know, their days of wrestling are over and uh, they don't know anything else because they've spent a lot of years working. And uh, oftentimes, if they're lucky, if they can talk and if they uh, have a good television presence, they can have many years afterwards. And that was the case with Blassie, who was loved by Vince Sr. And Vince Sr., uh, actually uh, brought Blassie in and, of course, he worked with San Martino several times. And then when his career was winding out, Vince Jr. felt, you know, no, I want to keep Fred around. And, and he did. He, he kept Fred for years working in the office, I guess you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, Blassie had a job. Blassie, you know, he didn't make that much money, but he, he loved being in the business and staying in the business and having the limelight. So... Right. And even off. even when he wasn't on TV as a manager anymore, like I think by about 86 or so, they'd stopped using him on TV. He still continued to have an office role. He, you know, uh, what, by the time I got there in 2000, he was already home. He wasn't he was he was still like they were still paying him. They, they paid him for life, but but he wasn't in the office anymore. But I knew enough people that had been there a few years that even through the, you know, part of the nineties, he was still, he had an office in Titan tower in Stanford. He didn't really do a lot of work. He just kind of hung out and flirted with the girls who worked there. I hear a lot of stories about that, but uh, he just had fun. And um, until he just got tired and decided it was time to go back to Hartsdale and, and be with Miyako full time. But so I, I had one encounter with him, which I really wish there was more. Um, it was, I was on the fourth floor, which is where Vince's office was. And I was uh, waiting for the elevator and the ele to go down to my office and the elevator doors opened and Blassie and Miyako were there and they came out and I'm embarrassed to say I was speechless. I, I, I wish, I wish I had a great story. I had this vision in my head. I'm going to meet, hopefully I meet Blassie when I go to work there. And here he is in front of me. I couldn't say a word. I just, I was so flustered completely. And the, the other close call that I had, uh, Blassie, you probably know this, but he used to do Santa Claus for the kids at WWE. And um, he would 
play Santa Claus at the Christmas party. And he would also go to the daycare center. They had a daycare center called Titan Tots. And my kids were in Titan Tots. And um, first couple of years I worked there, you know, Freddie was still around. And he was he was coming down, I heard, to do Santa. And I'm so excited. My daughter's a year old, you know. And she had on the day that he was supposed to be there, she had an ear infection and she couldn't go in. She missed it. And, you know, of course, I said, well, I guess maybe next year. And unfortunately, there was no next year because he had he passed. That was the year that he passed. But, uh, you know, I would have loved that. What a picture that would have been to have. But uh, it was not meant to be. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like when I met him at the airport, I, I didn't want to even meet him. I was afraid. I, I I was stunned to see him in person, you know, and because he was just just like he was on TV. He was serious. He was, you know, he, he was huge. He was a wrestler. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's different. And and uh, he was quite, quite well known, like you say, all over the world. Uh you know, especially in Japan, they idolized him in later, in later times when he still was working. Uh, yes, in that country. Yeah, you know, he, he was actually friends with uh, just from hanging around the office. We had a mail, uh, our mailroom guy. His name was Howie. He was this older gentleman, and he ran the mailroom. And he was a little, just a little. Um, I guess mentally slow, you'd say, however you want to describe it. But he was a very nice guy. And Freddie became really good friends with him. And he used to give, and he was also a huge wrestling fan, this guy. And Freddie used to bring him memorabilia and just randomly and, and, and things that people would kill for. And I remember one time I went down to the mailroom to mail something out and Howie's down there. And I'm looking at his desk and over his desk, there's a giant framed picture of Blassie wrestling Ricky Dozan in Japan with Arnold Skoland as the referee, I think. And uh, just beautiful. I've never seen this picture anywhere else, anywhere online in any magazine. There it just was in the basement of Titan Tower by the desk of the mail clerk. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I have a picture that he autographed to my wife and it's, uh, he's biting John Tolis's forehead and there's blood all over the place. And it says uh, to Jamie, uh, uh, love and kisses, Freddie, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's sitting right here in this room and I'm going, I got to hang this up or reframe it or something. Cause it's quite, quite stark. So I, <laughs> that's hilarious, but I, I wanted to get back to, to him because I, I want to talk about the L.A. Coliseum show. But before I get to that, actually, something popped into my head before you when you were talking about somebody that you also cross paths with, because he's a guy that I think doesn't get enough credit nowadays as being one of the most important wrestling announcers ever. And it's Dick Lane. I think yeah. if you, you know, again, it's before my time, but just from what I understand of reading and learning and talking to people, if you had a Mount Rushmore of wrestling announcers, I mean, yes, you'd have Gordon Soley. Every, you know, people remember him. People love Jim Ross. He's fantastic. He's probably the best of the last, you know, 20, 30 years for sure. Lance Russell, you know, but on that Mount Rushmore, you would have to have Dick Lane. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I agree 100 uh, percent i worked with dick for years uh behind the scenes in front of the scenes 
with him. You know, Dick was a, a fabulous character actor in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s and did uh, several movies for RKO and uh, started off on television doing uh, Jalopy Derby, where the cars would race around and hit each other in this little ring area. And Dick would call it, you know, and that's where he got the term, whoa, Nelly, you know, and that stuck with Dick. And this guy uh, knew just so much. And, and so he transitioned very easily to wrestling. And for years and years and years, Dick was the voice of wrestling out here on the West Coast. And from uh, he loved it. He loved it. He never he, he would go to some of the wrestling shows, the live shows we'd have uh, after announcing them on Wednesday. And um, he was very approachable and you could talk to him. You could, he would tell you stories, not only about wrestling, but about his Hollywood career. And uh, when he passed away, his wife called me and she said, Jeff, she said, Dick had mentioned that uh, you're also a big wrestling fan. Would you like to have some of his memorabilia? Well, he lived uh, uh, out near Laguna Beach, which is a little distance from my home. And, and I said, uh, Mrs. Lane, I, unfortunately, I don't know when I could get down and see you and, and get that memorabilia. And to this day, I'm kicking myself in the ass for not going down there and getting that memorabilia because uh, it would have been just wonderful to have. And I, I like collecting that stuff if I can find it and not pay a fortune like they're asking today. Right. A Hulk Hogan, uh, a Hulk Hogan uh, uh, card, like a baseball card. Uh, I saw it was going for $5,000 the other day on Heritage Auctions. And I'm going, well, why can't that be me? Oh, I know. It, it always makes you wish you hung on to that stuff. I remember my grandfather telling me that he had a copy of Action Comics number one, with the first appearance of Superman, uh, when he, because he would have been like maybe 12, 13 years old. And his mother threw it away on him and they had no idea. And, you know, now you can get about three or four million dollars for that. Yeah, that's exactly. forever. Yeah. But um, but the, so the thing that I always heard about Dick Lane, too, is that and, and it's a shame that there's not a lot of uh, video out there with him on commentary. So for people that that's, I think, the thing, like if you're interested in learning when people talk about Gordon Soley, how great he was, you can hear a lot of his stuff. It's out there. There, there is a lot of it, but when people talk about how great Dick Lane was, it's almost like if you weren't there, you don't, you, you didn't get to experience it because there's very little of it around unless I'm missing it. I mean, it's hard to come by anything of him calling uh, matches. Well, going back to the old school theme that we have, uh, when Dick was calling wrestling in the, in the 40s and they first went on to television uh, on Channel 5, the local station here, um, they did everything on kinescope or film. And um, when I came into to work, uh, they told me, Mike LaBelle told me, go down to Channel 5 and see what kind of kinescopes and film they have on our old shows. So I go to Channel 5 and I go in there and uh, I met uh, Klaus Landsberg, who originated the Channel 5 uh, studio uh, productions, and he said, we destroyed that. We, we had no use. We didn't have enough room to keep that, that material. 
So whatever material was there, I tried to save and I, I kept so that when we would have like our 10th anniversary, our 20th anniversary, our 30th anniversary, we had some old film. And at the time, Jules Strombo was calling matches. Uh, uh, and for some reason, Dick wasn't on there, but there were a few with Dick. And then later on, when videotape was the source of taping things, three-quarter inch tape, uh, Mike LaBelle wanted to save tape and wanted to reuse it. So he would give me the tapes from the shows that we had done and were seen on videotape, I would take them to channel 34 and I would have them uh, degauss the tapes. So everything on the tapes was gone. And I had told Mike, yes. And I had told Mike, Mike, we shouldn't be doing this. We should be keeping it. And he goes, for what? For what? There was no thinking, well, right. in the future, this is, you know, history on the matches and stuff. We have uh, uh, the, somebody said there there is tape out there on the Coliseum show. I've never seen that. Um, that started, that started the Coliseum show. And uh, I, yeah, I have never seen it either. You know, yeah. not much of our stuff. Yeah. Good and stuff. That's and that's not even that's not even just a wrestling problem. That was a problem with all of TV back then. I mean, they were just destroying the tapes or in some cases, like you were saying, if you go back to the early days, there wasn't even tape. It was just being broadcast into space and um, and then it was gone. And that's why there's so many great TV shows from early TV that are gone. You just can't watch them. But with the kinescope, didn't they? It really was just a they just put a camera in front of the television and filmed it. Right. I mean, how right. that's about as crude as as you could imagine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and it looks that way when you watch it. You right. Know? So a lot of, that's why Landsberg probably said, get rid of this stuff. No one's going to do anything with this stuff. We're just going to we don't have enough space in our our vaults to keep this stuff, especially wrestling. Yeah. wrestling wasn't looked on as what it's looked on today you know so right and in, in fairness you know i'm not not to say they were right to do that but you could understand the point of view of in that time period what could you do with it i mean there was no home video there was no streaming there were no there's no wwe network there's you know there's no uh, no network is saying hey we want to air uh, the best of uh, of Hollywood wrestling, uh, you know, there, there was there wouldn't have been a lot of use for it. But you just wish some of these people had been a little more forward thinking to think, well, maybe one day there will be, you know, because uh, now we know better. Um, there's so much stuff that's lost. See, but what I had heard was that Dick Lane, because he was one of the first calling wrestling on TV, that he invented so many of the names of the moves and the holds because a lot of times they didn't have names. He did. He did. But it made sense. Those names made sense. They, you know, it wasn't the LaBelle lock or whatever <laughs> they call it today. And, and you're going LaBelle lock. When it, you know. But anyway, uh, that's Dick. Dick did that. And it made a lot of sense. And when I started calling matches from uh, when, when Dick uh, no longer did the shows and I was doing uh, the shows uh i even used some of dick's terminology on holds because they did make sense and uh um, you know the, the the bad part of all of this is that uh when i was a fan um 
if I wanted to uh, try to get something off of the wrestling show, I would get a Sony tape recorder. I'd put it by the TV, press the play button, and at least get the, the, the voices of the guys doing interviews and stuff like that. And I have still some of that stuff left that goes way back and uh but but try to find a tape recorder that'll play tape you know today so <laughs> that's yeah that's how it was it's a shame I, I have a lot of great interviews that i did when i was working for the magazines at wwe that are on tape and some of them are digital because i converted to digital while i was there but so many of the interviews are on those little mini tapes and they sound terrible, even when even when I find a, a player that can play them, and it, it's too bad. It, it is it, yes. the stuff That's isn't. Yeah, there's so much that gets lost and not preserved. But um, I, yes. I started the magazine for Vince. You know, are you talking about the the WWF the, magazine? Yeah, you did. I started the magazine. Yeah, how did I not know that? I should know that. I used to work I there myself. Yeah. Well, I did. Uh, close to three magazines on it. And then uh, uh, something came up and they changed their format and they wanted it done a certain way. And I said, look, I've been doing wrestling magazines and programs before you were born. And, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it this way. I'm going to do it the way I want. And you'll get just the same, if not better publication. But uh, I went there for Vince, and uh, he said he wanted to start his own magazine with his own photography uh, uh, people doing it, not outside photographers like Aptor and and the the people that were doing it for other magazines. And um, he called it Victory Magazine, and, and I was in a meeting with him, and I said, Victory Magazine, Vince, is there is a company called victory magazine and he says i don't give a crap i i'll call it what i want to call it so what are you gonna do what do you i sat there like little mouse and okay then sure it's your magazine so the first magazine is victory magazine and then the other magazines because of a legal threat by the victory company that put out uh, the wrestler and those type sure, of stanley weston yeah uh, right and uh, they were quick to act on that. And so then he just said, well, I'll just call it WWF magazine, which is what I really thought he should do all along. Oh, sure. I mean, and- obvi- obviously, especially because if you're if you're making a magazine that's just going to be about your one product and your, your company, I mean, that's what you want to call it. <laughs> it's all about branding. I, I could never <laughs> understand the victory thing myself either, because when I worked there, you know, we had access to the archives of all the issues. And I, I look back at the first couple and I would go, well, why did they call it that? What an odd thing. And especially if you are going to pick a name, not only is it does it seem weird, but it's also, like you said, the name of another series of wrestling magazines <laughs> of all yeah. things to call it. Why would you why would you do that? But what I liked about some of the early issues, and I guess it's the ones that maybe you worked on, is that it wasn't just WWF. There actually was some content in there that was. Uh, from history or looking at people in other territories and things that didn't last long, but in some of those early issues, it was there. Right. right. And, and we also had a great photographer out here at the time. His name was Theo Errett. 
And yes. he was known for his wrestling work and his pictures. I could tell Theo, hey, get a picture of Snuka jumping over Don Morocco. Can you do that? And he says, yeah, sure. So, you know, Vince flew Theo out here for a few weeks and he took pictures at the, you know, the Capitol Arena and wherever, the, wherever they were working. And sure enough, I got that picture and I used it, I think, on the second issue of the magazine. I think it's the first, actually. That that shot of Snooka. Yeah. yeah, leapfrogging. We had it blown up as a giant framed thing in the office. We still had it up there. Uh, yeah, I did, too. And I, I presented and i did not know until this moment that theo arett took that shot that's incredible wow i'd have to say i mean he's probably the greatest wrestling photographer there ever was i mean i know that covers a lot of ground but was he was there's no uh vince had a, a young lady that was taking pictures and her pictures were good and and but i told uh, Vince, I said, if you want really good shots of wrestling, because this is a guy that you really, all you have to do is tell him what you kind of want, he'll get it for you in spades. And Theo was wonderful. And especially if we needed something where a guy had his foot on the rope, Theo would get his picture with the guy's foot on the rope. And then we'd use it, you know, toward a rematch or whatever else. And that's great. Theo was a he was a great guy too and i think what was good back then for the photographers is they had a little more freedom of movement you know like the the promoters liked having photographers at ringside because it made it look like it was a big deal and so they could kind of go where they needed to go to get their best shots and what i notice now typically especially with the in-house photographers at wwe and other places they they confine them to one spot. They have to stay in one spot, especially if it's television, because they don't want to be in the shot, you know. Sure. And so they're very limited in what they could get. If there's something great happening on the other side of the ring, they can't shoot it. They have to wait until the wrestlers come to them. And I just think it really, really limits what they can do. Definitely so. Yeah. Well, in those days, though, Vince wanted to... Uh, uh, eradicate all the other photographers be it yeah. the ring wrestling or uh, the wrestler or whatever and so he he stopped it for a while and uh, you know I think we had Theo for in the early days of the magazine as I said was really one of the only photographers to be able to go around and shoot but Theo, Theo didn't want to live on the east coast and he, he loved it out here and so uh, eventually he would, you know, he'd come back once in a while. He would go for Vince. Vince would pay his way for a few days or whatever. And, uh, but it didn't work out. And it's a shame because he was wonderful. So were you working um, in Connecticut then at that time for, for Vince? Or were yeah, you? I, I, well, I went in there and, and uh, I was negotiating with Vince to go in there full time and do uh, the magazine. And, and be the editor of the magazine and do the, you know, and, and he wanted to see what I could do. I, I actually went to Minnesota and worked for Norman Keitzer, who worked for Vern Gagne, and I helped him for a while with his programs. And then um, uh, I called Vince one day and Vince said, look, can you do a Madison Square Garden program that we're, we're having uh, the day after Christmas? And I'd like you to do it and so I could see your work so I did a really good program I mean I 
uh, it was Snuka and Buddy Rogers on the cover. And, and then it was, uh, I put a calendar in the center section, like a Playboy centerfold, you know, for these magazine for the, for the uh, programs he was selling. And in those days, you know, the programs were like a dollar or 50 cents or quarter. That's what we were selling programs for. And uh, today, I think they're $20 or $25 if you want some kind of program. Yeah, I, I, I wish I had it. I have it behind me here. I wish I grabbed it. I took my son because, you know, I used to work on the programs when I worked there in, in the early 2000s. And um, yeah. what they have now is even light years beyond what I did. I picked it up. Uh, I took my son to uh, the garden um, in the fall and he's four years old. And he wanted a program. I said, great. I don't even to tell you the truth. I don't remember how much it cost because I think I blocked it out of my mind because it was just so upsetting. But yeah. I, I think $20 might have even it might have been more than that. It was a ridiculous amount. And here's the thing. It looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's big. It's glossy. The, the paper stock is fantastic. But here's yeah. the thing. All it is is giant. Um, uh, photos of all the wrestlers one at a time and that's the entire program there is not a single word of text anywhere in there and as a writer i take offense at that because i do too. Yes. i always found that it's, it's funny because when i worked there doing these things i kept feeling like they wanted less and less copy and more and more photography and now what I see happen is the trend continued. So now there's no copy. There's nothing. There's just giant pictures. And that's all it is. And you're paying, I hate to sound like a curmudgeon, but you're paying so much money yeah. for just a book of pictures. I, I don't know. I just, um, sure. I see it and I go, God, I could do so much better. I need to reach out to them again and see if they could use me, you know? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you but, go. But, but speaking of big shows, I have to talk about the, the Coliseum show, uh, mm. because for, for people that know, um, you know, August 1971, right? L.A. Coliseum Super Show, mm -hmm. Freddie Blassie, John Tolas set the all-time California attendance record for wrestling, still the Los Angeles record for wrestling. And in some ways, it's often looked at as the first of the really modern, giant wrestling super shows it's just a landmark show and you were i mean that was right around the time you were just starting to work there right or not long after i mean you were right right there for that like i said i had started working at the olympic in 67 so by oh, right. 71 okay. i i had a good feel of everything and that was a show that took a year and a half to plan down to everything and we sat in the office and every week we would try to refine things and uh mike said uh, instead of the olympic this is going to be a big show uh we're going to go to the la coliseum we've got a chance to do this at the coliseum and try to get more than just the ten thousand people that we were getting so uh he booked the coliseum and uh, uh i did all the publicity for the show and uh we brought in uh, talent from so many places from San Francisco. We, we brought in Paul DeMarco, who at the time was the U S champion. We brought in the, the Sheik from Detroit, who, uh, was always a big draw for us. And, 
uh, he worked against Bobo Brazil, which is the formulated thing of that area. That's the Blasian Tolis of the Michigan area, you know? Yes. So uh, we had so many other matches and we had Gordman and Goliath and we brought in from Mexico, El Solitario. And we, we had uh, oh, so many great athletes and it was a really star studded show. And like you say, it broke the attendance records at the time. And it led to the closed circuit TV matches or, right. or closed circuit pay-per-view matches uh, that that uh, the very first that that were ever shown, and we we uh, had closed circuit matches into three downtown LA theaters after the Coliseum show. That was a continuation of Blassie and Tolis. Blassie and Tolis in a in another a rematch. Blassie and Tolis in a cage match, and it was so popular. And uh, you know, if we could draw all those people. Uh, we would go back to the Olympic, but the Olympic still, uh, there was an overflow. So why not use the movie theaters to uh, get those people in? And I did the announcing for the very first show. And I kept asking, are there any people in those movie theaters watching any of this? And so we had a guy uh, named Tom. He went out and he went to all three of the theaters. He says, they're packed. There's lines still with people trying to get into these movie theaters listening to you uh, you know call the matches and, and all that stuff so um, right. it was innovative if not to say the least and it was michael bell's idea yeah and the closed circuit thing really like you said i mean that's like the precursor to pay-per-view and that's in a lot of ways why why i think people point to that show and that era too as as the kind of the modern super show where there's more than just the people in the building that are getting to see it. You know what I mean? Where, where it's like, it's getting carried other places. And I know even in New York, they started doing towards the end of the seventies, I think where um, they would have the closed circuit in the garden, in the felt forum next door, which was the theater next door to the garden. Yes. And at their peak, they were putting, you can't do that now because of the seating arrangements, but they were putting 22,000 people, in Madison Square Garden, and another three or four in the Felt Forum next door once a month. I mean, that's just uh, crazy to think about how the wrestling business was thriving back in those days. Um, you know, people always talk about, and it's such a misnomer, they, they think of wrestling from that era as being low rent and these little smoke-filled buildings and all this kind of stuff. And it, it was really big business and a lot of times really big crowds. Yeah, but it was smoke-filled buildings. Right. It was, but it was both. It wasn't just that. I mean, there were some no. big shows. You know, the, you know, WrestleMania was not the beginning of of big wrestling shows. There, there was a lot of big, great attendance and big shows. Yeah, yeah. It really wasn't though until Vince uh, started to do his expansion that he expanded into a lot of the big arenas. Uh, as you know, uh, Ed Cohen handled a lot of those shows and that was that because i asked mike labelle years before that i said mike wh which way is the wrestling business going to go and he said well you know the wrestling business is always going to be here but one day it's going to be like the barnum and bailey circus it's going to play in big tents or big build the big arenas and that's all it's going to play your little arenas like we have here in southern california they're going to go the way of the dodo bird so 
uh, unfortunately, that tended to be true. Yeah, he was pretty prophetic there, for better or for worse. Um, and and he sort of um, he was one of those people who kind of got steamrolled by the whole thing, right? I mean, you you were if you were working for Vince then on the early days of the magazine, were you um, kind of caught in the middle there of that whole, cause it became kind of an ugly situation between Vince and Mike LaBelle, didn't it? Where he was sort of wanting to use him as his West coast representative. And then the relationship just fell apart. No. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's a big story. And like I said, in itself and yeah. maybe the story for another time, but that's how things developed. Uh, Vince's first move outside his northeastern territory was here in uh, Southern California. And I remember uh, Vince calling me and saying, why isn't Mike on a regular uh, VHF station at the time? There was VHF and UHF. Yeah. And of course, V was popular stations, the, the 2, 4, 7, 11, whatever, you know. And uh, I said, well, I said, Mike, uh, to be honest with you, Vince, Mike doesn't want to pay for the time on the, on the uh, you know, he wants to get it bartered like uh, has been done by all the promoters around the country. And that was the downfall of all the promoters around the country because Vince realized, look, I can give them a good product and I can also pay them $2,500 a week to get my good product put on TV. And that started it all. Vince took a plane, came out here on a Saturday morning. I know because I picked him up at the airport. I drove him to Hollywood to uh, the WOR affiliate out here, which is KHJ Channel 9. Vince was in there for less than an hour, made a deal to get his, his uh, TV show put on uh, KHJ on a Saturday morning at 11 a.m. in the morning and starting in January 1st or whatever it was, and came back out, said, take me back to the airport. I, I'm going back. I'm catching the next plane. I'm going back east. I've made my deal. I've got TV. I've got my wrestling show on. Because he offered to pay them $2,500 a week. And that's what he did with all of the areas that had popular wrestling. And these guys in the TV station said, whoa, wait a minute. We're setting up our studios. We're having studio wrestling. We're paying you. And you're going to come in and you're going to pay us? Oh, that's phenomenal. And there, there goes Crockett's TV. There goes uh, Eddie Graham's TV. There goes, and that's just yeah. the way it started to spread like a cancer. And it, and it sort of was uh, in a way kind of almost treating wrestling like an infomercial, you know, where you, you're paying for the time and you're using the show to sell your product and get people to pay to come see the shows which really was what the TV was always about. But now you're outright paying for the time, which is totally different. And I saw the same thing when I was uh, working on the book on the Sheik and I was learning about um, basically what happened to Mike LaBelle in LA and what happened to other promoters also happened to George Cannon in the Detroit and in the Toronto and Detroit area, because um, the Sheik was already out of business by then. And George Cannon was the guy that was on TV in the Detroit area. 
Vince made a deal with him and, you know, got his TV on in that area. And then when he didn't, you know, need him anymore, he kind of was out of the deal and he called it the worst deal that he ever made in his life. So it seems like it was just the pattern of doing business <laughs> at the time. And, and that happened other places as well. Uh, and, and definitely here. And, uh, you know, it, it, Mike LaBelle and Vince Jr. were just the buddy, 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 buddy of all time. But that fell apart. Mm. And uh, one of the reasons, like you say, it comes down to wrestling is a business. Right, right. right. And, uh, and also, and that's <laughs> that really sums it all up, basically. Yeah, it's true. Wrestling's a business. Um, and I could talk about it forever. But before we stop, I wanted to mention the book, too, again, because um, yeah. the title's great. Like, I, I don't think I met, we mentioned it before, but if you ever watched LA wrestling, then you'd know why the title is RI95171. Cause that was the phone number you called to get tickets. And it was right there on TV, you know, because the, 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 um, the Olympic auditorium, right. They had it up on the, on the wall there behind the ring. So you could see it. Um, so it's called um, RI95171, a wrestling story. And how can, uh, what's the best way for people to get it? Well, you know, the book, which just flabbergasts me, is that sometimes you'll see it on eBay and it'll, it'll sell for 100 to $300. And I'm going, this is just a little bathroom book. You know, <laughs> you can read it probably two hours or whatever. And uh, the best way to get it is uh, who, and, and this was the person that, that inspired me to write the book, uh, my son, Scott. And uh, Scott's a big factor uh, as far as that goes. But you can get a hold of Scott. It's uh, scottmwalton at gmail.com. That's scottmwalton at gmail.com. And he can give you all the information on how to get the book because we just happen to have a few copies left. And they're not selling for that kind of money. (laughs) Well, maybe maybe we could help move a few because I mean, look, I mean, for anybody that's interested in learning about wrestling in that territory at that time period, even beyond that, right? Do you talk about Memphis oh, yeah. and other things in there? Oh yeah, I, I, uh, we got the Coliseum in here. It's a whole separate chapter. We've got uh, my Tux Newman days as a manager in in Memphis. I've got letters that were sent to me from Freddie Blassie uh in there uh in, and working with uh, all kinds of uh, all wrestlers uh uh that were in Jarrett's territory including Jerry Lawler, Eddie Gilbert and Bruiser Brody who I managed uh, while he worked there briefly mm-hmm. and so uh the book really has a lot of things that you covered but a lot more in here in detail yeah, so that's a must to me. Then I, I I'm gonna have to get my own copy because I'm ashamed to say I don't have one. So when when we finish, here, I, I'm gonna. You don't. I thought we did that and we exchanged. Okay, all right. I'll send you a copy. Oh, that would be great. I would love. I would love that. But yeah, for for anybody else, I I would encourage you to check it out because it's a fascinating story. And I do know. I, I remember even hearing you on the 605 Super Podcast with Brian Last and hearing some of your. Your your amazing story. So uh, I think people... tell Brian he owes me money. <laughs> I will pass along. See, he just asked me to say hi to you and give you his regards. But I so I could go back to him and say hi to him and give him my regards and say he owes me money. 
I will definitely do that. Um, all right, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for, for uh, going early for you here on the West Coast and giving me some time to do this. This is fascinating. I, I want to do it again down the road because I want because we didn't even get to talk about Memphis. So I want to do that, too. Oh, great. Love to do that. Yeah, this has been a pleasure for me. And it's, uh, I wish you a ton of luck on, on the book on the Sheik. And everybody should get your book because I'm sure it's a fascinating read. Well, thank you for, uh, for saying that, Jeff. I do appreciate it. And, and thanks for chatting. We'll do it again soon. Well, there you have it, folks. The great Jeff Walton sharing some of his memories, some of his insights. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed doing it. It's always a pleasure to talk to Jeff. And incidentally, for those of you that are interested in, in picking up his book, um, please feel free to reach out to uh, the email address that he mentioned in the interview, uh, and he would be happy. He and Scott would both be happy to send you a copy. Um, in the meantime, want to mention some of the some of the guests we've got coming up in the weeks to come on Shut Up and Wrestle. Already mentioned, of course, RVD. That one will be coming April 13th. Also got uh, coming up soon, we're going to have uh, interviews with Dave Dynasty, the podcaster and historian. Uh, talking a little bit about Dick the Bruiser and wrestling in Indianapolis. We're also uh, going to have the first of my interviews with some uh, employees of Titan Tower that you may not know of, but you'll definitely enjoy their stories. We're going to be starting with um, former art director uh, Deborah Jazway. That's going to be a really enlightening one. And also I have confirmed to have Dr. Tom Pritchard coming up on the guest list um, in the weeks to come. So I'll keep everybody posted on some of those. Uh, I don't know how you guys are listening to this podcast, but of course, there are many, many ways. There's the website, suawpod.com. That is the website for Shut Up and Wrestle. But of course, you can also find it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts, basically. Um, for the magazines that I work on, of course, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can buy copies at getpwi.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you'll find that uh, at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Also want to mention the book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic. The release date for that book is April 12th coming up it's five weeks away now but you can pre-order it now so i encourage you to do that you can go to amazon and pre-order it um the pre-order ensures that you will get a copy just in case amazon runs out you will be on the priority list to get a copy so you can go there and do that you can also find me of course as always on social media um, i am on twitter and instagram and tiktok <laughs> as brian r solomon also on Facebook, uh, you can find my wrestling content at Pro Wrestling FAQ. That's the Facebook page that I run. You'll also find links on all of those pages to um, my author webpage. And as I've mentioned, I am the co-host of the PWI podcast with Al Castle, another great podcast that you guys should be looking out for. So as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And reminding you that if you give me 22 minutes, I'll give you the world. So long, wrestling fans. 